Wokingham, Henley, Reading. Okay. Ta-da. The voice. River Radio. Of the Thames Valley. Good morning. It's turning pages on River Radio. Coming up, we've got Rich and Judy's summer picks. And we're diving into water in books. Hello there, I'm Heather and you're listening to Turning Pages with Julian and myself. Thank you very much indeed to Deborah for a fabulous Your Life, Your Way today. And good morning, Julian. How are you today? Good morning, Heather. Um, how are you? Uh, yeah, I'm very well. I am hearing you loud and clear, but it appears that we have some sort of technical hitch from Julian's end because Julian can't hear me. Lordy, lordy, what are we going to do? Let's see how we can how we can manage. Um, so I've had a fabulous day today, uh, this week. And um, I went to a barbecue over the weekend and I was talking to a friend who was on um, in a book club and she was having a bit of a busy time. So she was listening to her book on audio instead of um, by reading it. And there seemed to be some sort of bit of a, a, a rumpus at the book club because they felt that she shouldn't be reading uh, listening to her, her book, she should be reading it. And I think that's rubbish, personally. Sorry, whoever that book club is. But I think it doesn't matter how you get to books. It's uh, it's enjoying them as the main thing. And every week on Turning Pages, we want you to enjoy books. So we aim to delight you with an eclectic mix of recommended books to enjoy from the latest bestsellers to our favourite classics, because great books aren't just on the bestseller list. So if you love reading or you just want to make sure you know what's happening in the world of books, this is your programme. And as always, we have got a bumper filled hour designed for you this week. Um, Julian is still having problems with his microphone. So we will be looking at the Richard and Judy summer book pick. Uh, they always come up with some great, uh, great books to choose in their uh, in their book club. And uh, Julian and I will be looking at recommending books around the topic of water. We've got a hosepipe ban either on or any minute going to happen to us down here. So uh, we thought we'd just look at water. And to start the show, as always, we've been scouring the papers to spot interesting book news for you all. Now, we're going to start with a quick roundup of what book stories have been in the news recently. And hot 
off the press, our very own nutritionist, Jenny Tishi, who presents Let's Do Lunch every Friday between 11 and 12 on River Radio, has just taken the number one spot in the Times best-selling section of non-fiction manuals. Congratulations, Jenny. Her latest book is the Air Fryer Cookbook, which knocked the pinch of nom off the top of the chart. So that just shows you how good it is. We've spoken in the past about the pinch of nom, and it's a hugely successful book. And there's always one of their cookbooks on the uh, on the bestsellers list. So that's well done that Jenny's managed to knock them off the the very top of the charts. Now, my sister has an air fryer and uh, she is a huge advocate of them. And I've been talking to a few people recently about whether or not to get an air fryer. But uh, my sister recommends uh, baking chalk chip cookies. Anyway, that comes highly recommended. And uh, the air fryer cookbook contains lots of tried and tested air fryer recipes for you to use and is selling like hotcakes I believe. So congratulations Jenny and do listen in to her her show. It's on every Friday uh, between 11 and 12 on River Radio. Now we are still having problems with Julian so uh, let us just see. He hopes to come back on if you can hear the ping of the Zoom. Um. Can you hear me, Julian? No, it doesn't look like it. Oh dear, never mind. We're going to continue with the um, news and let's just hope he can come back on. Right, so following on, hot on the heels of the fabulous win of the Lionesses in the European Cup just recently. And of course, the start of the football season already. Can you believe it? Footballer Marcus Rashford has been active again in the book business. Now, last year, you might remember, he launched a book club to get disadvantaged children to read more and more and encourage reading for pleasure among children who don't have books at home. So Macmillan, his publisher, donated 50,000 books to more than 850 primary schools. Now this year, the book chosen to be gifted to all those children will be Rashford's very own debut children's fiction book, The Breakfast Club Adventures, The Beast Beyond the Fence. It's a mystery book that is a super fun story about friendship, community and exciting adventures. I'm sure it'll be a hit. And well done Macmillan for donating another 50,000 children's books to um, to all those primary schools because I think a love of reading needs to be sorted very early. Now, if you're in London and looking for something different to do, well, you might want to pop along to the Stationers Company. Now, this was a medieval union for manuscript writers and illuminators. It was established in 1403 and today, can you believe it, the company is still going strong. It's based around St Paul's Cathedral. The original hall was destroyed in the Great Fire of London in 1668 and then was rebuilt. Now today the hall is one of the most beautiful buildings in London, especially so now as it's just reopened 
following a seven and a half million restoration project. So I think that's something different. And it's I quite like the fact there's a medieval union for manuscript union, uh, writers. Now, obviously, it's very different nowadays, but it would still be fun to have a look at that hall. Now, pin your ears back and listen if you've ever had an interest in running your own bookshop. Applications to run a bookshop on a desert island resort in the Maldives for a year has just reopened. Well, that sounds absolutely amazing. Ultimate Library and Luxury Resort, Suniva Fushi, are again recruiting for possibly what they call the best job in the world. And I've got to say, it absolutely sounds it. They're looking for a replacement as a barefoot bookseller. So the placement starts in October and it runs for 12 months. Now, the first placement, they've been doing this for a couple of years now, because the first placement began in 2018. And it was originally just going to be for six months. But as of last year, the role at Sanava Jani was extended to 12 months and organisers said that the trial run of the longer placement was successful and allowed the resort to continue to have literary events throughout the quieter months and they're going to do the same at Suniva Fushi. So the role can open up a number of opportunities. Now a previous um, barefoot bookshop um, winner was the head of Zeus, former head of communications, Chrissy Ryan. And when she came home, she set up her own book bar bookshop and wine bar in Islington following her replacement. So obviously that sounds like great fun. And Chrissy's done a little bit of a U-turn in her in her career. So the advertisement says, and I do want to tell you because I do encourage anybody to uh, to enter because it does sound fantastic. While most of us find that holidays are the only opportunity we get to read for pleasure, finding the perfect book that enhances your destination and opens your mind can be a challenge. So previous barefoot booksellers have provided guests with unforgettable literary experiences from writers workshops to personal reading consultations and they're interested to see what new ideas you can bring to the role. So the ad continues, the ideal candidate will be a team player with a passion for books and the ability to engage with guests um, of all ages. They will be have excellent written and uh, verbal English skills, a lively tone of voice to write, an entertaining blog that captures the exhilarating life of a desert island bookseller and the skills to host workshops and other guest experiences. They must have the ability to fit in with the distinctive Suniva culture. So if this is something of interest to you, just search for barefootbookseller.com. And it sounds fantastic. Now, the Booker Prize long list has been announced. And it's a really interesting list for the Booker Prize this year. With the oldest and the youngest authors ever to be nominated, as well as the shortest book, three debut authors and two new publishers. Now, the fantasy novelist Alan Garner is the oldest author nominated and he wrote his first book, can you believe it, 62 years ago and he's now at the ripe old age of 87. That's fabulous being nominated at the age of 87, isn't it? It just shows you your brain, his brain is obviously still as active, still as excellent. 
He's best known for his children's novel, The Weird Stone of Brinsingerman, which is set in Alderley Edge in Cheshire, where all the Manchester United football players all live now. His latest book, Treacle Walker, she says, getting that right, will be up against the youngest ever contestant at the age of 20, Layla Motley, who's the American-born writer of her debut novel, Night Crawling. And that sounds a really great book as well. So far, the 169 entrants have been whittled down to 13 books on the long list. The short list of six will be decided at the beginning of September and we'll be bringing you the chosen few in more detail then. And the winner will be announced on October the 17th. Now, the chairman of the judges this year is Neil McGregor. He's the former British Museum director. And he says that his criterion for the books chosen so far have been based on the skill in which the authors shape and sustain the worlds they've created. So it'll be really interesting to see which books make it through to the shortlist and to that deserved sales bonanza. Good luck to them all. And we look forward to telling you more at the beginning of September. Now, for everyone, or nearly everyone, loves a good crime novel. And we're delighted to announce that the Thixton Old Peculiar Crime Novel of the Year 2022 winner has just been decided. It's Nick Heron's Slough House, which took the glittering prize. Now, we've spoken about his novels in the past. He's seen as the John le Carre of our generation, and his books are eye-wateringly funny, and they're also nerve-shreddingly tense. So, well recommended, and congratulations, Mick Heron. And the libraries, in our final story this week, uh, week. We've got the libraries have just given a list out of the most borrowed books for 2020-21. And it's always interesting to see what they've come up with. Now, obviously, we've got Richard Osman's The Thursday Murder Club has just been a massive bestseller um, on the purchasing books. And that success continues as he's dominated the uh, bestselling list here. But Lee Child is also hugely popular, coming second and tenth as well, with his two novels, Blue Moon and The Sentinel, respectively. And Blue Moon also topped the chart for the most loaned title in print. J.K. Rowling's um, Chamber of Secrets and Michelle Obama's Becoming Viking are the two most borrowed audiobooks. And in print, crime and thriller continues to prove popular, with three entries for Child and two for Anne Cleves. As you can imagine, J.K. Rowling reigns supreme in children's books, holding the top seven spots with her Harry Potter titles. And David Williams takes up the remaining positions with the top ten, with the eighth, ninth and tenth position with Slime, the World of David Williams, and finally The Beast of Buckingham Palace, all by Harper Collins Children's Books. And finally, James Patterson was the most popular author overall, followed by Lauren Child, known for her Charlie and Lola children's books, and Julie Donaldson, author of The Gruffalo, amongst others. The voice of the Thames Valley. River Radio. I think I like it. I think beat comes next on the list. 
So let's just listen to Hotel California by the Eagles whilst we just see if we can resolve our technical hitch with Julian Hangel. Step. 
Thank you for listening to Turning Pages on River Radio. We um, read cause great books aren't just on the bestsellers list. Now, whilst we were listening to Eagles, thank you very much, Eagles, for having such a long song there. We have got the cavalry have arrived, and I'm joined in the studio by Mike Bryan. So, Mike, thank you very much indeed for joining me. My pleasure. That was uh, very exciting. Mad dash down Winter Hill. <laughs> Uh, avoiding uh, diversions, but I'm here. You uh, are and here. I, I'm taking over from Julian. You are just, uh, I, just for today. I do have to say, Julian's much better at this <laughs> than I am, but I'm here in the flesh, in the studio. That is, is brilliant. Fantastic. Right, so over to you. Yes, yeah, so water, water everywhere and not a drop to drink. Uh, that's the cry from the ancient mariner uh, by Samuel Taylor. And coming up in the show... Heather and I will be recommending a book inspired by water. But first, we've been looking at the latest recommendations from the Richard and Judy Book Club for the summer. 
Absolutely. They always do some great books. So the very first one they've recommended is Leanne Moriarty, Apples Never Fall, published by Penguin Books. I've got to say, you want to say a name of Moriarty, don't you? You would, yeah. Well, I would, because I'm a big Sherlock Holmes <laughs> Absolutely. Fan. So Leanne Moriarty is the best-selling author of nine novels, including Big Little Lies and Nine Perfect Strangers, of course. Her novels have sold more than 20 million copies worldwide and have been translated into over 40 languages. Now, Big Little Lies is now an award-winning HBO series, of course, starring Nicole Kidman and Reese Witherspoon. And Nine Perfect Strangers have also been adapted for TV. Now, Moriarty is back with Apples Never Fall, centred around the tennis-obsessed Delaney family. We meet the parents, Joy and Stan, who are tennis marvels and besotted with one another. They retire after 50 years of running a, a tennis school to spend their twilight years with their feet up. But things change quite quickly when a mysterious girl called Savannah knocks on their door, bleeding and looking for shelter from her abusive boyfriend. She's welcomed with open arms, but Joy and Stan wonder what she's really after. Joy goes missing and Savannah is nowhere to be seen. The only person who's left is Stan and he has some suspicious looking scratches on his face, leading two of his kids to question his innocence. And as the police become involved and each family member is interviewed, it's clear they all have secrets and troubles of their own, which by the end will all be laid out for everyone to see. A gripping and nail-biting read. The next book is um, another thriller. It's A Slow Fire Burning by Paula Hawkins, um, also published by Penguin. Um, Now, Paula Hawkins' first thriller, everybody will know, I guess, is The Girl on the Train, uh, which was a global phenomenon, selling 23 million copies worldwide and was a box office uh, hit um, for the film starring Emily Blunt. Um, Houseboat, a deceased man, three different women with connections to him, but who is the culprit? Paula Hawkins brings her writing genius to another chilling whodunit murder mystery that will have you gripped with twists and turns to the very end. Prepare to be completely shocked with the outcome. Oh, not that sounds great. Be, yes, it's not to be missed. No, and um, Paula Hawkins, she, she's brilliant, isn't she? So Fabulous. That's, that's going to be good. Now, the next one is Ken Follett. Now, uh, his latest book is Never published by Pan. Now, I I sort of see Ken Follett as a historical fiction author. Do you remember Pillars of the Earth being published? The story of the building of a medieval cathedral. Yeah, it's Salisbury Cathedral. Yeah. And uh, it's a fantastic book. It is a fantastic book. I really enjoyed it. And it went on to become one of the most beloved books of the 20th century. That was published, I can't believe this, that was published in 1989. He did start out as a thriller writer, though. He did indeed. I didn't know that. He started out as a thriller writer and with a wartime spy drama called Eye of the Needle yep. in 1974. That's right. And uh, that became international bestseller, has now sold over 10 million copies. And Never, his latest book, is very much in that same mould. And uh, the reviewers are saying that the book will have you up till 2am in the morning wondering where the hours went. I just love books like that, where you just have to read the next chapter. Oh, just one more chapter. Oh, one more chapter. Oh, no, it's two o'clock. 
<laughs> well, of course, these pillars of the earth is so big, you could have the next chapter, very next chapter for about three months, couldn't you? <laughs> you could indeed, yes. That's for insomniacs. <laughs> right, so, as always, Ken Follett does not hold back on ambition and compelling narrative. Uh, a US Army drone is stolen, and what starts as a terrible mistake snowballs into a cataclysmic event. There's a secret stash of deadly chemicals, a shrinking Sahara desert, a spy on a life-or-death undercover mission, a brilliant Chinese spymaster, and US president beleaguered by a populist channeler, uh, challenger. So all eyes are on the American president as the two superpowers jostle and use their proxies to lay the groundwork for what could be a third and cataclysmic world war. Events domino, and the blowback gets more and more troubling, leaving both sides unwilling to back down. So it's time to test resolve, diplomacy, and nuclear arsenals. But who will blink first and be called the ultimate aggressor? I mean, this just sounds a little bit too close uh, to the bone. Too close to the truth to be... Um, uh, it's, it's very scary, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Anyway, the book is a gasp-out-loud kind of a read. So not to be missed if you're into thrillers and spy thrillers, but if it's a little bit too close to the truth, possibly not. Is that a trigger warning you've yes, popped in a there? Yes, a trigger warning. Absolutely. Beware, this thriller is a thriller. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> so what have you got next? Uh, so i got Rose Tremaine, um, uh, and it's called Lily, and it's published by Vintage. Um, the multi-award winning author, uh, Dame Rose Tremaine's novels and short stories are hugely successful. I think she was actually um, one of the best of British, uh, which Grant, uh, Brit- Brit- British novelists, which Grant did um, uh, a few years ago. Yes. And she was kind of an odd fit because yeah. she wasn't particularly literary. Um, but she's been massively successful. But yes, I think a, a literary book, is that the definition of a literary book, is one that hasn't sold as well as you wanted it? Well, I think so. So well <laughs> well done, Rose, for writing some bestsellers, really. Uh, so Lily is her latest book. Uh, it's a delicious thriller set in the 19th century in Victorian England. Um, a fabulous tale of rejection, poverty, survival, guilt and redemption. Uh, We meet Lily at 16 years of age, surviving as a wig maker. She was abandoned at birth and taken to a foundling hospital. This institution really existed uh, at Coram Fields, uh, near to the present site of Great Ormond Street Hospital uh, in London. And in fact, you can go round and there's a little museum there. It's there is. Fabulous, the, it's isn't called it? the Foundling Museum yeah. and uh, that is well worth a visit. Um, it's a bit of a tearjerker though because it is very, very um, sad what, uh, what happened. Yeah. Um, I think lots of the mothers used to leave a little token. Yes. So, and some of them are just little bits of ribbon or just something. Just a bit of ribbon yeah. or something uh, in the hope at some stage they might be able to get them back. That's, to reclaim them. Yeah, yeah, that's very tragic, isn't it? Um, so there, Lily uh, at the hospital, at, uh, at the Foundling uh, Hospital, uh, experienced a little kindness, though she learnt how to be an accomplished seamstress. From the outset, we know she has murdered someone and expects a harsh punishment. The unfolding of this matter and the search for her mother provides the thread to the story which moves back and forth across time. Ah. Sounds great. Yeah. I think Rose Tremaine is really well known for doing historical novels. Yes, yeah, so, she is. Uh, yeah. that's, uh, uh, 
that's her bailiwick, yeah, isn't brilliant. it? Brilliant. Now, I've got one here called One of the Girls by Lucy Clark, published by HarperCollins. Now, this book has a picturesque scenery and absorbed blue water so stunning that you'll feel as if you're on an exotic vacation whilst you're reading this. It's a perfect summer read. It's Lexi Lowe's long-awaited Hindu, and she's jetting off with her five friends to the Greek island for four nights of sun, sand, sea, food and wine before she says I do to the love of her life, Ed. She's under strict instructions not to contact him throughout the trip, but with lots of differing personalities at play, she feels a sense of unease from the very off, not the ideal start. The scene is set for four days of fun in the sun, but each of the women have their own agenda and reasons for being there. They're all harbouring dark secrets, and as the booze-fuelled nights begin, they begin to rise to the surface. Someone doesn't want this wedding to go ahead, and someone won't leave the island alive. But who? Lucy Clark's One of the Girls will keep you guessing until the very end. And we've just got a little excerpt from the very start of the book. Let's listen to that now. Lexi unwound the taxi window. The warm wind was infused with pine and the acrid smells of sun-baked earth. Tiers of whitewashed houses clustered close to the rising blue dome of a church. The sky, Lexi thought. My God! How wide and cloudless could the sky be? It felt like a magician's trick, swapping the rain-slicked pavements of London for the shimmering heat of Greece. She couldn't quite believe that she was here. We're on a hen weekend, Bella was telling the taxi driver, oversized sunglasses pulled down, lipstick freshly reapplied. Lexi's the bride, she said, swivelling round in the passenger seat to point. Congratulations, the driver said. Warm, dark eyes flicking to hers in the rearview mirror. Thank you, Lexi smiled. The bride, she was the bride. She shook her head lightly, still a little stunned. I'm a maid of honour, Bella announced proudly. You know, the best friend, the important one who organises the hen weekend. Hen parties made Lexi think of twenty-something-year-olds dancing in cheap veils, shots slurped through phallic straws, blistered heels and too short skirts. In fact, had Lexi been twenty, she would have loved a hen party. She would have tossed back the tequila, danced on the podium in a whisper of a dress, and when her feet blistered, she would have kicked off her stilettos and danced barefoot. But she was 31 now, finally, much to everyone's surprise, including her own, getting married to a man she loved. I love you. She'd actually said those words aloud, meant them, just like that. Three brand new words, settling between their pot of coffee and the stack of sourdough toast. He'd moved aside their mugs, reached for her hands. His fingers were tanned with fine golden hairs on the back of them. And he'd said, I love you too. She glanced at her engagement ring now, the emerald cut diamond glittering wildly. She was intent on keeping the wedding small, a gathering of family and friends, taking over an old mill licensed for ceremonies. Simple, intimate. I hear you, Loki, Bella had said when Lexi explained her wedding plans. But don't think for one minute that exempts you from a hen party. So here they were the tiny Greek island of Igos, 
They'd left behind the tourist hustle and a strip of noisy bars as they drove west from the airport. Now the road had emptied and narrowed, carrying them over a scrub-lined hillside where the music came from the tinkling of goat bells and a donkey braying in the lengthening shade of an olive tree. she told Bella that she wanted to spend the weekend lazing in the sun, reading, swimming and eating. Bella had nodded earnestly for about two seconds before the corners of her lips curled upwards and she wiggled her eyebrows, meaning she had other plans entirely. Almost there, the taxi driver said, changing into a lower gear as the tarmac gave way to a stony track. Lexi gripped the door as they bounced over rutted ground, tyres kicking up clouds of dust. They swung round a rock-strewn potholes as the track drew them closer to the edge of the island. When they crested a hill top, for a moment Lexi could see nothing but the glittering blue kiss of a sea. Then suddenly the villa appeared, stone white with a Greek flag, blue floor. It stood like a crown on the cliff top, raining over a tiny jewelled coal below. Lexi could only stare. Bella clapped her hands together. Oh, wow! As a taxi pulled away, Lexi, a hand on a hip, turned on the spot, breathing in their surroundings. Cliffs, ocean, mountainside. Not another building in sight. She caught the plaintive cry of a mountain goat somewhere in the distance. Lexi felt a strange flutter of apprehension in her chest. She told herself it must be the anticipation of the weekend to come, a sense of pressure knowing that her friends had come all this way for her. Yet, as her heart rate began to gather speed, it felt more than that, as if she was unnerved by the very villa or its remoteness or the occasion itself. Bella appeared at her side, hooking an arm through Lexi's. She grinned, a strangely wolfish smile. This weekend is going to be perfect. Well, that was great. And uh, now we have another book, uh, which involves somebody called Lexi. Um, It's How to Kill Your Best Friend by Lexi Elliott, published by Corvus. You can hear the surf breaking on every page in this dark tale of intense and complex relationships that twist from gripping secret to secret to an utterly breathtaking ending. It's a slow-burning summer thriller. Two friends, Georgie and Bron, gather for a memorial for their missing and presumed dead friend, Lisa, on an idyllic island resort. Although an accomplished swimmer, she never returned from the swim during the last meet-up with the group. Georgie missed the last meet-up, and now on the island that Lisa owned with her husband, she is receiving missed emails from Lisa hinting at sinister goings-on, and both Georgie and Bron start to receive threatening messages. The island is menacing and poses imminent danger. With poor weather closing in, escape is increasingly difficult. Each of the female and male friends all have their secrets. The plot is slowly peeled back, with chapter heads giving menacing methods in how to kill your best friend and get away with murder. The pace picks up at the end and twists and reveals an entertaining read. You'll not be able to put this down. 
That's a great idea, putting the um, chapter heads yeah. as uh, giving you a different way to kill your friends. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's like uh, 100 Ways to Leave Your Lover. It's uh, get on the bus, Gus type of, yes. type of thing. <laughs> Sounds fantastic. So books recommended in the Richard and Juicy Picks for the Summer are... A Slow Fire Burning by Paula Hawkins, published by Penguin. Leanne Moriarty, Apples Never Fall, published by Penguin Books. Ken Follett's Never... Uh, published by Pan Books. One of the Girls by Lucy Clark, which is published by HarperCollins. Rose Tremaine's Lily, uh, published by Vintage. And finally, How to Kill Your Best Friend by Lexi Elliott, published by Corvus. So this is Turning Pages on River Radio, your book programme. Thank you for listening. If you've just joined us, we have missed you. But never fear, you can listen again to our podcast from whichever service you use. Just search for Turning Pages on River Radio podcast and listen whenever you like. And do post a like on our podcast. It really helps. River Radio has a a host of great programmes that you can listen to, both music and talk focused all throughout the week and make Turning Pages your regular listen. We're on every Wednesday between 11 and 12, and repeated on Saturday afternoon between 2 and 3. That's great. Now, this week, with hose pipes being threatened around Britain, and advice that we all need to reduce the time we spend in the shower by a minute. Did you know that, Mike? I did, I did. Right, so the theme of the, wa- of the week is what, what else could it be? It is water. And we've chosen a book apiece. Now, Julian's chosen this book for, uh, but Mike is going to um, talk about it on his behalf. So what's, uh, what's the pick? Uh, well, the pick is Rivers of London by Ben Aronovich, uh, first published by Galantz in 2011. Uh, now, Rivers of London is the first of 10 Peter Grant detective novels, which are classified as urban fantasy and will delight readers who enjoy magic and sorcery to play a part in the present, uh, so to speak, along the lines of Jonathan Strange and Mr Norrell, for all those uh, who know that particular tale. Uh, to get a flavour of this cracking story, uh, I have a reading for you. Right, let's go. Rivers of London by Ben Aranovich. Chapter 1. Material Witness. It started at one thirty on a cold Tuesday morning in January, when Martin Turner, street performer and, in his own words, apprentice gigolo, tripped over a body in front of the west portico of St Paul's at Covent Garden. Martin, who was none too sober himself, at first thought the body was that of one of the many celebrants who had chosen the piazza as a convenient outdoor toilet and dormitory. Being a seasoned Londoner, Martin gave the body the London once-over, a quick glance to determine whether this was a drunk, a crazy or a human being in distress. The fact that it was entirely possible for someone to be all three simultaneously is why good Samaritanism in London is considered an extreme sport, like base jumping or crocodile wrestling. Martin, noting the good quality coat and shoes, had just pegged the body as a drunk when he noticed that it was, in fact, missing its head. As Martin noted to the detectives conducting his interview, it was a good thing he'd been inebriated because otherwise he would have wasted time screaming and running about, especially once he realised he was standing in a pool of blood. Instead, with the slow, methodical patience of the drunk and terrified, Martin Turner dialed 999 and asked for the police. 
The police emergency centre alerted the nearest incident response vehicle and the first officers arrived on the scene six minutes later. One officer stayed with a suddenly sober Martin whilst his partner confirmed that there was a body and that, everything else being equal, it probably wasn't a case of accidental death. They found the head six metres away where it had rolled behind one of the neoclassical columns that fronted the church's portico. The responding officers reported back to control, who alerted the area murder investigation team, whose duty officer, the most junior detective, constable on the team, arrived half an hour later. He took one look at Mr Headless and woke his governor. With that, the whole pomp and majesty that is a Metropolitan Police murder investigation descended on the 25 metres of open cobbles between the church portico and the market building. The pathologist arrived to certify death, make a preliminary assessment of the cause and cart the body away for its post-mortem. There was a short delay while they found a big enough evidence bag for the head. The forensic teams turned up, mob-handed and, to prove that they were the important ones, demanded that the secure perimeter be extended to include the whole west end of the piazza. To do this, they needed more uniforms at the scene, so the DCI, who was the senior investigating officer, called up Charing Cross Nick and asked if they had any to spare. The shift commander, upon hearing the magic word, overtime, marched into the section house and volunteered everyone out of their nice warm beds. And thus, uh, we are introduced to Peter Grant, a young probationary police officer in the Metropolitan Police Force, who is looking for a permanent posting in the service when he becomes involved in investigating the very bizarre murder which we've just been party to. He and his colleagues, Leslie May, are guarding the scene when PC Grant encounters a ghost who introduces himself as Nicholas Walpenny, who witnessed the crime. Grant tells Mary of this, and though he is sceptical, helps Grant to look into uh, into, into this further, and they check CCTV footage of the night before, and all the events described by Walpenny are confirmed by the film. Grant then goes back to the scene and meets an odd detective by the name of Nightingale, who does not seem at all phased when Grant tells him of the ghost. Grant goes for his placement interview expecting to be put into a paper-pushing department, but to his surprise, he's posted to a hitherto unknown department headed by none other, the Detective Nightingale. The secret department investigates supernatural matters, and Nightingale tells Grant that magic is real. Nightingale and Grant investigate the St Paul's murder and as they track down the main street, main suspect, uh, it is apparent that the magic spells are at work at, as the subject, having murdered his wife and child, collapses in front of them and shrivels away as a result of a spell called Dissumulo. As this wasn't enough, the pair are called to investigate Amongst other things, a turf war between two river gods, Mother Thames and Father Thames, with supporting acts from other river gods, because, as you see, each river has its own god. Mother Thames is a Nigerian lady who took on the role in 1957 when Father Thames decided (laughs) he didn't want uh, to be responsible for that part of the river in the city. (laughs) 
Mother Thames has daughters, uh, one Beverly Brooke uh, and another Lady Tiber. Father Thames has a son, Oxley, married to Isis, uh, also significant because they are all names of London rivers. The story gets quite involved as the warring river families are interlinked with the magic which is causing the mayhem and death. In order to keep grasp on it all, uh, PC Grant begins to study to become an apprentice wizard, the first in England for over 70 years. I'll leave it there because there is simply too much going on in the story to do it justice. Uh, But if you want to know what goes on in the Opera House in Covent Garden and how a ghost judge can issue warrants, then you'll need to get a copy of the book. I think it sounds brilliant, doesn't it? It does. It It sounds sounds really good. It sounds absolutely brilliant. And I think hot off the press. Uh, Yes. Hot off the press? Well, almost. Uh, It has been announced that Rivers of London will be adapted for TV, uh, with the nine uh, other novels being part of the series. Uh, The paperback edition was published in Orion, uh, by Orion, priced $8.99. By the by, the author is a former Waterstones bookseller. I've got to say, it sounds brilliant. It is brilliant. And I laughed out loud at that uh, excerpt. Just genius. Yeah, it's really good. So with all that talk of rivers, uh, I've chosen the river close to home. And it is Jerome K. Jerome's classic about messing about on the Thames, three men in a boat to say nothing of the dog. Now, I think that's your favourite book. Is that right? It is. Um, As you know, I used to work for Penguin Books and uh, we had to, uh, rather brilliantly, uh, on our business cards, put down what our favourite book was. And uh, without doubt, um, Jerome K. Jerome's um, Three Men in a Boat is Definitely my favourite book. Yeah. It's so funny. It is funny. And what's amazing is it was written in 1889 and it's still funny. Yeah, I think that is, it it has really, um, uh, the test of time has has treated it well. Because it is hilariously funny, even today. You can imagine um, it being three guys on a boat on the Thames yeah. last week. You know, it's 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 yeah, so absolutely. it's so great. Yeah. So if any anybody out there hasn't read this book, it's basically it tells the tale of three city clerks on a boating trip and it hovers somewhere between a shaggy dog story and episodes of a late Victorian farce. And uh, we have got a reading um later on uh, for you and I do hope you enjoy it. So What's it all about? Well, if Jerome K. Jerome was asked that question, he would probably say about 150 pages. <laughs> so um, as you can see, it's not a very long book. Uh, but you could argue that Three Men in a Boat is about the camaraderie of youth, the absurdity of existence, about camping holidays, playing truant, comic songs, and the sweet memories of lost time. You could also read it as an unconscious elegy for Imperial Britain, if you wish. But I think just enjoy it. Now, did I admit to say that it also features a dog named Montmorency? Which, of course, has to be included. In short, like all the finest comic writing, it's about everything and it's about nothing. Now, Jerome intended his account of a boating holiday to be a popular travel guide 
because uh, travel was a booming market. And in fact, it began life as actually it was commissioned as a travel article for a magazine. Um, and it, so in late Victorian England, there was a vogue for recreational boating on the Thames between Kingston and Oxford. So this was the golden age of Henley Regatta with rowing boats and steam launches and even the occasional and gondola. Now, in the season, up to 800 vessels a day passed through Bolter's Lock near Maidenhead. And there's that famous painting that you often see on biscuit tins. And uh, Yeah, it's an absolutely wonderful painting. I can't remember the artist. No, uh, the I can't artist remember now. the artist. He, he used to live in Marlow, actually. Yeah, but, uh, but you've got Maidenhead Lock, you've got Bolter's, Bolter's Lock, Lock. And it's just filled to the brim. It's crammed. With lovely boats and everyone's in their Edwardian finery. It's absolutely fantastic. Well, Maidenhead was the Thames Riviera, wasn't it? So absolutely. people people used to holiday there. It might just be a long weekend, but it was uh, in weather like uh, today. Today, just, yes. Just the most gorgeous place. Yeah. And in fact, uh, his descriptions of Hampton Court, Marlow and Medmenham for the travel article are the ones that survive um, in the original book. Um, so the river journey he makes with his friends George and Harris and Montmorency the dog becomes the narrative line on which he hangs a, sequ- a sequence of comic anecdotes loosely associated with the journey upriver. And I've done a reading for you. And if you know the book, it's the one about the pineapple. I do hope you enjoy it. It cast a gloom over the boat, there being no mustard. We ate our beef in silence. Existence seemed hollow and uninteresting. We thought of the happy days of childhood and sighed. We brightened up a bit, however, over the apple tart. And when George drew out a tin of pineapple from the bottom of the hamper and rolled it into the middle of the boat, we felt that life was worth living after all. We were very fond of pineapple, all three of us. We looked at the picture on the tin. We thought of the juice. We smiled at one another and Harris got a spoon ready. Then we looked for the knife to open the tin with. We turned out everything in the hamper. We turned out the bags. We pulled up the boards at the bottom of the boat. We took everything out onto the bank and shook it. There was no tin opener to be found. Then Harris tried to open the tin with the pocket knife and broke the knife and cut himself badly. And George tried a pair of scissors and the scissors flew up and nearly put his eye out. While they were dressing their wounds, I tried to make a hole in the thing with the spiky end of the hitcher, and the hitcher slipped and jerked me out between the boat and the bank into two feet of muddy water, and the tin rolled over, uninjured, and broke a teacup. Then we all got mad. We took that tin out on the bank, and Harris went up into a field and got a big, sharp stone, and I went back into the boat and brought out the mast, and George held the tin, and Harris held the sharp end of his stone against the top of it, and I took the mast and poised it high up in the air and gathered up all my strength and brought it down. It was George's straw hat that saved his life that day. He keeps that hat now, what's left of it, and of a winter's evening when the pipes are lit and the boys are telling stretchers about the dangers they have passed through. George brings it down and shows it round, and the staring tale is told anew with fresh exaggerations every time. Harris got off with merely a flesh wound. After that, I took the tin off myself and hammered at it with the mast till I was worn out and sick at heart. 
whereupon Harris took it in hand. We beat it out flat. We beat it back square. We battered it into every form known to geometry, but we could not make a hole in it. Then George went at it and knocked it into a shape so strange, so weird, so unearthly in its wild hideousness that he got frightened and threw away the mast. Then we all three sat round it on the grass and looked at it. There was one great dent across the top that had the appearance of a mocking grin and it drove us furious so that Harish rushed at the thing and caught it up and flung it far into the middle of the river and as it sank we hurled our curses at it and we got into the boat and rowed away from the spot and never paused till we reached Maidenhead. Fantastic. That's just brilliant, isn't it? I, <laughs> yeah. I'm tears laughing at that. At that. Just the, the way they beat the um, the tin into remarkable shapes. And, you know, beat it flat, beat yeah. it square. Yeah, it's just great. It's brilliant. Stuff. So needless to say, it's been chosen eight times on Desert Island Discs for yeah. the favourite book pick. Well, as soon as I'm on Desert Island Discs, it'll That's be your- nine times. <laughs> We'll look forward to that. And uh, and when it was published, the critics hated it. Everyone ignored that. And the book became a runaway bestseller with the publisher complaining, I paid Jerome so much in royalties, I can't imagine what becomes of all the copies of the book that I issue. I often think the public must eat them. Well, luckily, I have a first edition of it, ah. so, which is which is really cherished and treasured, really. Yeah. Um, but it's such a it's such a great book. It's very funny. The um, uh, Hampton Court maze story uh, yes. section is so brilliant. Yeah, uh, I think people just go out and buy it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm going back home and reading it. Now. <laughs> I think I think I will too. I'll beat you to it. Right, and one more thing. We've got a bit of a sad story, actually, haven't we? We have, yeah. Uh, sadly, Raymond Briggs, uh, the great um, uh, illustrator and uh, children's author, um, died yesterday. And uh, that's a, the world is a sorrier place without him. It is. Most people probably know him from The Snowman. Yeah, I think uh, the, the, the Snowman is probably his best known thing. But of course, he did write, write two other wintry uh, type books, uh, Father Christmas. Uh, and Father Christmas goes on holiday to uh, great picture books for um, Puffin. They're picture Puffins. What I remember Raymond Briggs for is When the Wind Blows. Yeah, so that Pe- Penguin published that in about the 1980s, I yeah, think. Very, uh, uh, yeah, very early. As an adult book. It's, it is an adult book. He's known as a children's author, but it's definitely an adult book. And uh, it is all about uh, a potential nuclear yes. war, uh, yeah. nuclear winter. Uh, and it's very very um poignant and uh and actually uh, you and i back then um were worried about nuclear war uh, absolutely yes and, now, and then we stopped worrying about nuclear war and now and now um, we are slightly worried about yeah nuclear let's, war. let's move on <laughs> but anyway raymond briggs rest yes. in peace yeah yeah. We, we salute you. Yeah, absolutely. Books that we've been recommending today are The Air Fryer Cookbook by Jenny Tishi, published by Ryland, Peters and Small. Uh, we have Marcus Rashford, The Breakfast Club Adventures. The Beast Beyond the Fence, published by Macmillan Children's Books. The Magician by Colm Toybin, published by Penguin. Mick Heron's Slough House, published by Baskerville. Rivers of London by Ben Aranovich, published by Ryan. 
and The Fabulous Three Men in a Boat by Jerome K. Jerome, published by Penguin Classics. So thank you for listening to Turning Pages on River Radio today. Do tell your friends and you've enjoyed it. And we're always interested in receiving your recommendations of books to share. So do get in touch with me at Heather at river.radio if you've got any books or any news items that you think would be of interest. And a, beggy, a very big thanks to Mike Bryan as well for helping me out today. And Julian will be back uh, next week. I am absolutely confident. So if you uh, don't forget, Turning Pages is on every Wednesday between 11 and 12 and repeated on Saturday afternoons between 2 and 3. And if you want to catch up with us again, any programmes you can miss, you can listen again on direct from our website or on the Turning Pages podcast. Just search for Turning Pages on River Radio podcast. Thank you for joining us. Bye bye. In a world where radio stations are ten a penny... Can I have ten radio stations, please? That'll be a penny, lad. Thank you. There is one radio station...